We all know what we need to do. We just need to work a little smarter or procrastinate a little less, start a little bit earlier, stop checking the phone so much. These things are clear and they make sense. And above all, it's for our own benefit. So why then can it just be so difficult to make these seemingly simple changes to the way we approach things? And of course, this applies every bit to our teens as they approach their studies. Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021. Each week, I catch up with these very different teens to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. Now, these could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how to best revise for a specific subject. These are normal teens, and so you can be sure that we'll be covering the kinds of topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer, or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at habits and behaviours, specifically how best to adopt good ones when it comes to studying and revising. I'm really excited to be talking to Sheru Izardi. Sheru is a behavioural change specialist and best-selling author of The Kindness Method, which is an internationally published book on habit change. Through talks, workshops and coaching, she helps people better understand why they're finding it difficult to break behavioural patterns. As we're approaching the winter half-term mark, we've been looking at the study habits of our six students, who, to varying degrees, have identified things that they either need to start or things that they need to stop so that they can get the most out of studying. Joe, for example, is resisting putting the phone away while he's working, and Although he's told me he is getting on with his revision, his mum does tend to have to get involved to kick things off. Shuru, every student could rattle off probably a long list of things that they should or shouldn't be doing that would help them to, to do more. So why is it that developing good habits when it comes to revision and study is so difficult? a lot of the time having clarity on how we want to change and knowing that we really want to change and that it would benefit us is sadly not enough. I think a lot more insight has to be gained into why we're finding it difficult to change, the barriers to changing our our habits and how we're going to behave when we inevitably meet that moment of challenge, whether it's getting going or staying going when it's easier not to. And I think a lot of the time we underestimate the fact that even if something is good for us, change is difficult. Deviating from our status quo and our place of comfort is difficult. And I think a lot of the time we just don't have the tools and the insight into ourselves to push through when those inevitable moments come. And I think often when we plan for change and we plan to change our habits, what we do is focus entirely on the plan itself, as opposed to focusing on what we're going to do when things don't go to plan and how we're going to invest in and believe in ourselves more than we invest in and believe in our plans. Because I think a lot of us can be very guilty of thinking, and it's just very natural to think, I know how it would benefit me to change. I've color-coded a plan of change telling me, you know, meticulously planned and telling me exactly what I'm going to do. But what am I going to do when the self-doubt creeps in? Um, What am I going to do when my plan gets interrupted because life happens? What am I going to do if I don't feel great that day? How will I boost my motivation? I think a lot of the time when we write these 
very well-intentioned plans to change habits. What we underestimate is that our desire to follow through, our motivation will, will waver wildly throughout the day. And so a lot more planning in terms of getting to know ourselves and a preempting challenge, I think, needs to, to come into the conversation. And it also helps us to understand why we shouldn't be beating ourselves up about the fact that we haven't established a habit because just wanting to and knowing how to is sadly not enough. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Because you do hear that a lot that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down and I'm going to study at five o'clock and then it'll get to three minutes past five and then the students will say, well, that's that done. I haven't started. I won't bother now. I'll, I'll come back and I'll try again in another hour. Did you say this, this idea that if you set yourself up for a thing, I will do it. And if I don't do it, then it's all it's all over. Yeah, I think that all or nothing catastrophizing is often a way of us trying to swerve. It's a very natural human thing to want to swerve the discomfort of feeling that we need to do a piece of work that we find challenging or boring or unappealing in any way. What I often recommend when it comes to that all or nothing thinking is thinking, imagine if a younger sibling or a friend you really wanted to help gave you that reason for why they weren't studying or following through with a plan that they knew would benefit them long term. If they said to you, look, it's, it's three minutes past five, so I can't possibly start now, what would you say to them? And that's where this element of compassion really comes in, because a lot of the time, being kind to ourselves is not about doing whatever we want whenever we want and listening to any justifications we make for ourselves. It's about treating ourselves the way we would treat a loved one and not insulting our own intelligence and acknowledging that we will want to swerve difficulty and challenge at every opportunity. And I think at that point, starting to speak to ourselves with the common sense advice that we would give a loved one can be incredibly helpful. It's extraordinary how many things we can justify when they're in our heads. And if I want to go to the gym, for example, and I'm feeling a bit lethargic that day, but I know that it would really help and it starts raining. A lot of the time the rain will be, you know, a really put forward a really compelling case for why I shouldn't go to the gym, despite the fact that I've lived in this country for 30 years and it's going to rain. You know, so I think a lot of the time it is about calling out those excuses with compassion and curiosity and saying, oh, look, this is this is me trying to get out of doing something that I find difficult. That's natural that's expected and that's okay. But that doesn't mean that my behavior has to follow suit. It doesn't mean that a trigger like that to procrastinate, for example, needs to be a command that I obey with my behavior. I can absolutely relate to the not going to the gym because of anything at all, the wind's blowing in the wrong direction, the rain, as you say. And I really love that idea of what would you say to someone else? So as you say, a younger sibling or a friend, as a way of, I presume, taking yourself out of your own situation, because you wouldn't be as hard on someone else as you would on yourself. Is that right? Absolutely. And I think that very often when we think about the people we love and the way we would speak to them when they need a motivational boost, it's completely different to the way that we speak to ourselves when we need that boost the most. So a lot of the time I will do an exercise in my workshops, especially when I'm working with young people and teenagers, I will always use this exercise. Well, I will ask them to write down everything that they would say to their best friend, if their best friend was struggling or doubting themselves or doubting their capacity to change a habit. And very often people will write down things like, you can do this. How can I support you? Just push through, just do another 10 minutes and 
reevaluate then. You're amazing. Think about all the other difficult things you've managed to do, things like that. You've got this. You're fantastic. This is going to be great. You'll be glad you did it. It's just a blip. You can get straight back on track. These are the sorts of messages that by our own admission, we know motivate people. And then the next exercise is I ask students to write down what they say to themselves when they've let themselves down in some way, when they've got a result that they're not delighted with, for example. And very often what they'll do is write things like, I'm stupid, I was never going to do it anyway, I'm not as clever as so-and-so, there's no point in me trying, I'm just going to give up, I'll try again in a week, I'll wait until Monday. Now, not only is this not kind, it's completely unhelpful. Because what it can do is create a situation where, using my addiction spiel, where a lapse turns into a relapse, where a slight deviation from your progress or your plan of progress means that you spiral into self-doubt and procrastination and neglecting the sorts of behaviors that would actually help you to achieve more and get back on track. So I always tell people, when you get to that point where you need to make a choice for yourself, there are three questions you can ask yourself. Which choice will I be glad I made tomorrow? Which choice would I tell the person I love the most in this whole world to make right now? And which choice would someone who I find intelligent tell me to make right now? And very often the answer is there, and the choice is not necessarily the easy one, but it is the one that benefits you the most overall. So it's, it's so fascinating. Why are we so much harder on ourselves then than we would certainly be to other people or that they would be to us? The more I read about this and read about evolutionary theory, the more it seems to be the case that we are more attuned to listening out for our deficits as threats, essentially, and understanding what we're not great at. I think the other thing is we pick up a lot of core beliefs when we're younger, especially. I, I have a lot of clients who are in their 40s and 50s who have never sat to really unpack the fact that maybe something that someone told them when they were younger about themselves, a teacher, a parent, it's always well-intentioned, you know, but it may have been at a time when they were feeling particularly vulnerable and they will carry that core belief through and it will inform that critical internal voice that they have. Things like you're the sort of person who starts things and doesn't finish them, for example. Maybe a throwaway comment, but for a handful of people may turn into a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so I think a lot of the time it's about us choosing to listen in on that unhelpful voice and ask ourselves questions like, who does this sound like? Who does this remind me of? Why is this guiding my behavior? Was this critical thing that I'm saying to myself, was it true at one point? Was I the sort of person who started things and didn't finish them? Is that still true? You know, and just this compassionate, curious take on the conversations we're having with ourselves, because I think that they are key to changing habits and key to feeling motivated. Because I wonder, last week we were talking to Amari and uh, one of the things that came up in the course of his exploring mindfulness was that actually it can be easier to not really try and so then not succeed because you can say, well, at least I didn't try. And I wonder whether in that self-fulfilling prophecy element that actually if you don't try hard to get out those habits or you, you I guess, resist the temptation to change, that actually you can always just default to See, I told you so. I knew that's what it would be like. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I didn't actually try that hard. And if I had tried harder, then it would have been better. And so you're almost saving hope and you're not having to deal with real a real sense of failure, essentially. You know, I did my undergrad dissertation on academic procrastination. 
<laughs> which was my sort of cop out. And one thing that I learned about was something called close proximity to reward, which was something that I was certainly doing, was that I would I would wait until the very last last minute to complete all my tasks. And then if I didn't get a great mark, I would think, well, I only spent eight hours on it and I had three months. <laughs> so if I spent three months on it, it would have been better. So that'll do. Whereas if I'd spent three months on it and I'd got a bad mark, I'd be risking feeling pretty disillusioned with the whole process. And there was always that thing I could save, which was if I really, really tried, if I'd really tried, then this, you know, then I would have done better. And I think a lot of the time it is worth asking ourselves when we're finding it hard to change. What do I fear that will happen or what do I fear I'll have to experience or feel if I do this, if I actually do succeed at this? Because a lot of the time we realize that we've decided that there's a lot of responsibility that comes with achieving. If I manage to actually do this, then I'm going to have to apply for this sort of place. And if I manage to actually do this, then the expectation is going to be on me to keep it up, you know, things like that, which can be really difficult. And I think, again, are, are worth acknowledging and not beating ourselves up about. You can see how if I create a new benchmark against the study habits that I have, there's only one way from that I'm going to have to do more. And as you say, I'm also putting my neck on the line by saying I will achieve more by doing it. So it comes to that sort of fear of failure that we've, we've also heard about in, in previous episodes. Absolutely. And I think my approach, as long as things are safe, is to acknowledge that things are going to be difficult and focus more on your capacity to do difficult things than on trying to create the path of least resistance. So failure will be something that we all face. I would rather build up the tools that I have to deal with that in terms of speaking to myself with compassion and forgiveness and understanding, then I would avoid any opportunity that might result in failure. The same comes with habit change, for example. It's one thing to create the path of least resistance when it comes to the way you change your habits. But I think the important part is believing in your capacity to make spontaneous choices you'll be happy you made the next day when you are challenged rather than trying to make the plan easy. Assume that change will be hard. Assume that rejection will be hard and focus more on your capacity to deal with things that are hard. Is there also something in desire or motivation to do it? Because if we think about teen studying, and if I think about my own son when he was doing his, then actually studying isn't as enjoyable or motivating as in his case, uh, either doing nothing or being on the PS4. I mean, he was motivated. He wanted to get better at things. He had a goal. It just wasn't enough for him to tackle some of those bad habits that he'd got into, which might be having the phone by his side. It might be delaying and delaying and delaying uh, to get going. I think a lot of the time when it comes to day-to-day -day habits, urgency is something that we need to impose because the fact is you can leave it a few more days before you make that change. And those days can turn into weeks and months. So I think a lot of the time it, it can help to map out a picture of things in six months if you do invest in studying, one, for example, and spending less time on the PS4 and how things will look in six months if you don't do that. And there you see an accumulation of choices and what the outcome's going to be. And when you feel tempted to procrastinate or put it off another day or spend another day doing something that's more desirable but doesn't have the outcome you necessarily want. What I'm doing is I'm investing in my long-term goals as opposed to my short-term fixes. And that's a gift that I'm giving myself. And I know that's a bit of a stretch, <laughs> but I think that's really what we're talking about, aren't we? Is we're saying, 
can we put our long-term ambitions ahead of our short-term fixes? And how often can you make decisions that are in your best interest that you'll be happy you made tomorrow or in six months? Some of the habits might be for an immediate gain. As you say, if you were to look at the playing the PS4, that's an immediate gratification of entertainment, might be building to a skill, whereas studying is a longer burn. It's not here now. It is comparatively, as you say, boring. So if students were able to look at the bigger picture, take a step back and see how these changed habits might help them towards an ultimate path? Does it make it more meaningful to them? Absolutely. I think because that enables them to, or us, all of us, to get excited about what's ahead, as opposed to just taking a remedial stance and saying, okay, this is the one isolated habit that I won't be engaging in anymore because it's bad, as opposed to saying, I'm making a change in my life so that it has a knock-on effect on all these other areas of my life that are important to me. And so although the initial change may be difficult and as an isolated habit quite boring to implement if we can start getting excited about the knock-on effect that that's going to have on on our self-esteem on our self-efficacy on our relationships on the ways that we reward ourselves on the rewards that we receive as a result of those goals achieved then we can start getting really excited about it but i think it's ambitious to think that we're going to be excited because we've ticked off the goal of having studied one evening I think a lot of the time we assume that that will be enough, that we'll think I'm really proud of myself and I've really done well. And I think that that can kind of wear off. Whereas if you visualize yourself as being on a mission towards an entire life that excites you and that those academic goals are just one part of it, then it can be a much more exciting process. So then it seems to me that so much of this is then about perception and if you're able to gauge sort of a longer term benefit against a shorter term benefit, that actually the habit change doesn't become necessarily easy. But if you can justify it to yourself more, it would seem something that you individually can get on board with. Absolutely. And that you understand for your reasons and reasons that you value personally, why there is going to be challenge involved in the process of creating the sort of life you want. And you sort of take it as part and parcel and preempt that it will be difficult at times and almost saying, oh, yes, I was expecting this. That's okay. This was always going to be part of the process. So that probably goes to explain why it's easier for me to develop a habit of eating cupcakes and donuts because (laughs) immediately they're much tastier than going to the gym because actually it's harder work and I won't see any payback for a while. Yeah, but what I would say is think about the habits you want to be really good at in six months and the things that you don't mind not being so so great at when you think about the choices you make in the short term. So, I mean, you may want to be much better at eating cupcakes and eating them more frequently, but I'm guessing that you would prefer to be meeting your physical health goals, whatever they may be, more. So I think that's another thing is asking ourselves, to what end? How do I want this ending up? Where do I want to develop mastery? And a lot of the time that will give us the answer and the answer will be a little bit boring. I can honestly say I'm already quite adept at cupcake eating. It's changing those bad habits, I think, that's going to be the challenge for me. What I wonder then is when we're looking as parents at our children, our teens, and their approaches to study, what are the kinds of things that we could be encouraging them to do to help their teens to identify either longer term goals or just to really change the way in which they're looking at their own habits? I think that exercise of mapping out where you want life to be, ideal life mapping, and then working backwards and saying, right, well, if this is the kind of life you want, and this is what you want your average day 
to look like? What habits will you have to have formed? What goals will you have to have achieved between now and then? So there you create a sort of a to-do list with a purpose. The other thing I would say is trying to help people identify. I know that we don't always have the luxury of doing this, but if you're studying on the weekend or whatever else, trying to identify what times of the day actually work for spurts of study for each child. I know we're all different in that sense. And of course, you know, it makes sense to wake up in the morning and feel fresh and whatever else. But for me, for example, I find that if I exercise in the middle of the day, I feel quite lethargic in the second half of the day, whereas I've got a lot of friends who find that it's quite the opposite. If they exercise in the middle of the day, it gives them a boost, they're re-energized and they're ready to do the second half of the day. I think it's about really understanding what's your style, what's your bag. So in that sense, you can create the path of, of least resistance for yourself when it comes to the plan. Just this constant reminder when they're met with challenge, can you practice speaking for yourself the way you would speak to someone who you were motivating? And, you know, the interesting thing is a lot of the time I say, speak to yourself the way you'd speak to a loved one. And that works. But as I've developed in my career and started to train people and going to schools and stuff, I've realized that actually... The same works if you say to someone, motivate someone who you don't love, but who you'll get a million pounds for having motivated. And you will realize that the script that you decide to use is compassionate, is encouraging, is positive, reflects on strengths and achievements. And on that, I would also say, start to develop a map with young people of all the things that they're proud of themselves for having done, all the things that are difficult that they've got through. I know right right now that will not be a challenging task because they are just extraordinary the way that young people are adapting right now. The challenges that they're facing are just absolute heroes. And I think it's a lovely exercise to sit down and just write down all the things you're proud of yourself for, all the things you've managed to get through, all the things you doubted you could do. And they don't need to just be academic. They can be anything. Anything in any area of your life that you felt was complex or challenging, or that if I told you a few years ago that you would have managed to do, you would have been happy to hear about. And keep those in one place. And if possible, every Sunday, for example, spend five minutes just adding to it, reflecting on the week. What are you proud of yourself for? What went right for you? And what that helps provide is a snapshot that you can look at in those moments where you feel challenged or you doubt your capacity to push through procrastination or you doubt your capacity to do anything complex. You can glance at that and remind yourself that whatever I'm trying to do now is not more difficult than these things that I've managed to get through and do. And it can be a fantastic boost and it can really help challenge that self-defeating, self-critical voice that can very often come in when we're finding something difficult. And that's, interestingly enough, that's another way of reframing challenge. When you're met with challenge, what you're also met with is an opportunity to listen in on the internal soundtrack that you have, because that's when I find personally that it's loudest and most clear. You can really listen in, even if you're saying you want to spend you know, the first 10 minutes of the day without your phone. That's a challenge for a lot of people. And you may listen in and hear, what if there's an emergency? What if I miss something? What's happening on here? What's happening on there? Because you've created a tiny challenge. You want to be someone who has a more compassionate and useful, helpful dialogue with themselves. And so in listening to that internal soundtrack, and I absolutely love that imagery, should then students be, or parents and their teens, be sort of challenging themselves over but why is that important or what's the likelihood and try to break those down more than simply acknowledging that is a reaction yeah absolutely i think compassionate curiosity at all times why what am i afraid will happen 
what will change mean to me? Why am I finding this particular thing difficult and not that particular thing difficult? I think we constantly need to find opportunities to observe our behaviors that have formed as a first task in any behavior that we're not happy with. Stand back from a bit of a distance or lift out of yourself, or whatever it is, and just observe what you're doing and in response to what and what you find triggering and how you're feeling when you don't want to complete something and what series of events or circumstances have have happened in that day that have impacted your motivation in one way or another. It's a study of oneself a lot of the time. And best, I presume, to try to do that dispassionately. If you do it in the heat of the moment when you're in the midst of rebelling against a change that either you're imposing on yourself is happening around you, it can be much more difficult, can't it, to be rational. Whereas if you can take time on a Sunday, as you say, and it's certainly something that we've been advocating, this sort of weekly review and a a plan session. If you can do it at a time that's not in the moment, you can be much more productive. It's very common to have moments where you think, that's it, something's got to change, I can't carry on like this anymore. As of tomorrow, everything's going to change. And then a couple of days later, you find yourself thinking, ah, you know, I might have been overreacting, it's not that bad, it's not the end of the world if I don't start yet. And I think it's about that, again, being something that you expect So when you get to a stage where you're becoming a lot more mindful and conscious of your behaviors and self-aware, what you'll notice is that you'll say to yourself, right, what I say now is whenever I make a plan of change and I decide that's it, the next thing I think is, okay, well then expect in a couple of days that you're going to normalize this moment and you're going to trivialize it and to tell yourself that it isn't that important. So that will probably be your first challenge here. Push through. And I will write myself something. I'll say, right, so this is the moment that you've come to that you expected when you're pretending that how you felt the, a couple of days ago doesn't matter anymore. And you're probably making a bunch of excuses. But the fact is, it does matter to you. And you expected that this would be a challenge. So you're going to push through this. You expected it to happen. There's something about preempting our own behaviors. For me, it's almost a smugness, if I'm perfectly honest, that I kind of think, gosh, I knew this would happen. You know, I knew that this is how I would try to justify dealing with the discomfort of change. And I've already decided how I'm going to, to respond to this. It feels less like you're white knuckling change and it feels more of an empowered way to navigate a difficult situation that you expected to be difficult, but that you believe in your capacity to push through with. Mm, I love that image again, of white knuckling change. The idea that actually this is going to be uncomfortable. So if you can preempt it and arm yourself against it, you stand a much higher chance of successfully changing that habit or introducing a new habit yeah and also i think seeing the value in discomfort if i said to you okay in six months you've managed to do all of the stuff that you want to do what would you have assumed that you would have had to do and if anyone would say i would have had to get through this challenge i would have had to demonstrate that i'm capable of doing this thing that i don't think i can do i probably would have had this number of days where i didn't want to do it but i did it anyway i probably would have had a few days where i absolutely hated the process and so when those things come up Rather than thinking, oh, no, that's it, I'm throwing in the towel, we should be thinking, oh, yeah, of course this was going to happen. This was an inevitable part of the change process. If it was going to be easy, I would have done it by now. One of the things that we we were talking about and you were talking about a moment ago was small changes. And also you talked about small challenges. As we sort of look at our habits, look at our behaviours and think, actually, I need to I need to change this. I need to, if I really want to achieve this goal, which I'm now visualising, I'm going to need to have a radical overhaul of how I approach things. Would you advise that people focus on the things that they can change within their control and start small? Or 
are these more seismic, sort of revolutionary overhauls something that can be achieved as well? The seismic revolutionary overhauls are far more exciting and appealing, but I think that the likelihood of actually managing to do them increases a lot if we get okay with the more boring answer, which is start small. But I think very often if you start with the more ambitious plans, it's a case of two steps forward, th three steps back, particularly if you're an all or nothing catastrophizing person who thinks, well, if I haven't done one element of my plan, then the whole plan's gone to waste. <laughs> I think that's one thing that I learned personally was that the smaller shifts give you the boost you need to keep going and make the bigger shifts and build on them one by one. One example I often give is I became a member somewhere that has a swimming pool and I decided I want to make the most of it. So every morning I'm going to go swim and I don't swim at all. So I don't know how I thought I was going to go from no swimming to swimming. I think it was a hundred laps or something. Anyway, I kept not going and I realized that there's so many different parts to this before I even swim. There's the fact I have to pack my bag. There's the fact I have to wash a swimming costume. There's the fact I have to wake up earlier than I ever would. I have to walk to this place. I have to, you know, all of these considerations, all these tiny habits that are going to cushion the one habit that I've actually focused on, the 100 laps a day. So what I decided to do was in the first instance, and it was, it was months that I kept attempting this and I would hit the snooze button or I wouldn't have packed my bag. And what I decided to do was just, just tell myself, I'm going to go to the swimming pool and have a shower there. I'm not even going to get in the swimming pool. I'm not even going to exercise. And for a week, I just did that. And then I did five laps and then I did 10 laps. And I had to really push against the desire to want to do 100 laps one day and no laps the next. And, and I just kind of knew myself and I said, just stick to this really gradual, really gentle plan. And I got there. And so I think a lot of the time it's about thinking, what steps will I need to take? What tiny habits that are associated with all of this am I going to need to get okay with? And maybe I should start practicing those first before I introduce the core habit that I want to change. Or if I'm perfectly honest with myself, how much progress have I made with this very ambitious seismic shift plan? And really look at the discrepancy there and kind of think, gosh, actually, I haven't made that much progress. If I just put one foot in front of the other in quite a boring way, I probably would have got considerably further than I have with these whole Monday morning ambitious plan. Mm. So again, looking at those, it's, it's a case then of looking at the smallest goals, the smaller habits that you need to adopt in order to get to this big one. And it sounds to me that certainly in your case, and you can sort of immediately see how it would apply to any of us, that if you've done that and broken it down into smaller milestones along the way, that actually you can become much more tenacious about wanting to do it because actually it feels that much more achievable in the context of something seismic. Absolutely it does. And it's also remember that when you achieve those little goals, you become more ambitious for yourself in different areas of your life. You start pleasantly surprising yourself and thinking, oh, maybe I want to try this, maybe I want to try that. Maybe you're reminded of your capacity when you voluntarily choose to do something manageable but challenging. And so when's the best time to start making these habit changes? I've, I've identified now that I've got to change. I need to do more study. I need to work smarter. I need to do these kinds of things. Is manana okay? Am I right to leave it for now? I'll, I'll sort it out on Monday. I think, again, ask yourself what the common sense advice would be that you would give someone else. How is Monday any different to any other day? You know, I think... A lot of the time, if you just tell yourself, I'm going to do something for 10 minutes right now, then you'll be surprised how much 10 minutes will get you into the group and you'll think, okay, maybe I could do another five, maybe I could do another 10. Just say, I'm going to do 10 minutes right now. The idea of saying to yourself, fine, I'll just, I'll just do 10 minutes now, see how I get on. It's something that came up previously and it's remarkably powerful, isn't it? If you can sort of 
beat that procrastination bit, get over the first hurdle of actually starting. And actually, by the time you're 10 minutes in, you think, well, might as well see it through now. Might as well do, might as well do the full half an hour, whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. Because you've also set up the whole environment by that point. You know, you've sat down, found a quiet space, you've found the page you're reading or website reading or whatever. You're already there. And you may well have pleasantly surprised yourself because the 10 minute limit has actually made you far more productive than you would have been if you gave yourself a three hour limit. And that might give you a surge of motivation. I think just tell yourself it's just a tiny, tiny 10 minutes and then we'll reassess. Virtuous circle, isn't it? If you can get to that point where you've done the 10 minutes and then feel good about yourself, so you're then encouraged to do more and, and more and more and more, to actually makes it that much easier, frictionless, to get to where it is you wanted to in the end anyway. Absolutely. And I think frictionless is a fantastic word that we should be using more. It's creating speed bumps between you and the habit you don't want to be engaging in and removing the speed bumps between you and the habits you do. So for example, you don't want to be logging into Instagram while you're studying. Don't just delete the app. Take out your logins. Create steps between wanting to do something and actually doing it when it's a habit you don't want to be engaging in. My thanks to Shiru for so generously sharing her expertise, thoughts, and also some really practical tips too. Change, as Shiru has said, is not easy. There are any number of good reasons for it, but it doesn't make that change any less uncomfortable. There seem to be a number of different aspects that our teens need to consider in order to get to the point of adopting new habits. But clearly, understanding that you have to change something is just not enough. The first thing that we heard about was acknowledging that change is difficult, and it's a process that's made up of small steps. It's important for our students to remember that they want to have these good habits and to visualise where these good habits will take them, to zoom out, as Sheru puts it. It's something then that they can get excited about, and the chances are that revising for the sake of revising is not going to be that exciting. But how that revision will lead them to their perfect job, or whatever their aspirations might involve, will absolutely help drive them. Key, from what we've heard, is that our teens are realistic with themselves. There will likely be blips along the way, and in those situations, they should be compassionate with themselves. I really love Sheru's tip of thinking about what advice we would give other people if, if they'd stumbled while they were trying to change a habit in the same way that we might have done. It really helps to focus the mind on the fact that we're considerably harder on ourselves than we would be if we were trying to motivate somebody else. Now, teens should be absolutely motivating themselves to push ahead. We all know that they've had a hard enough time in the context of COVID and disruption to education without them being unnecessarily critical about their progress. As Sheru said, speak to yourself like you're speaking to your best friend or like someone was paying you a million pounds if you could help them succeed. This is such powerful and simple advice. When we set out to change something, whether it's study habits or lifestyle, it's important to recognise that change is involved. To preempt some of the obstacles and setbacks that we might encounter along the way, and also do what we can to remove that friction. Now for our teens, that might be as simple as putting the phone in the bread bin or making sure that they have the right working environment. But above all, our teens should take the time to recognise and be proud of the progress that they are making. After all, it would be easier not to try, and yet they've taken the incredibly brave step of trying to make a change. 
Thank you for listening. I hope that you found this interesting and useful. If you did, it would be great if you would take a moment to leave a five-star rating. It helps us reach other parents and spread the word on ways in which they can support their own young people. Of course, you're very welcome to share the link to this and the other episodes on your social media channels too. It's always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.